Welcome back to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein. So you know, this is our, our second episode. And I was wondering after the first one if we'd be cut and kind of thrown off of the podcast world. But somehow we survived. We're back here. And, uh, and I'm thrilled uh, because we have an incredible, uh, incredible guest today that I want to tell you a little bit about. Uh, I, I grew up watching sports. I was really into all sorts of sports, uh, hockey, football, uh, baseball, um, but especially, you know, Olympic sports. There was something about that. You know, people dedicate their whole life to, to that sometimes one minute or one game or one series of games. And actually, in some sports, if you take um, the 100-meter um, um, run, the most famous, um, probably the most famous summer Olympic sport, it's, 10 sec- it's less than 10 seconds and you're done. And you've dedicated your life to those 10 seconds. I think about people like that that would do such a thing. And it's like, talk about a single-minded focus. But, you know, which, whatever uh, uh, Olympic category you're in, uh, whether it's 10 seconds or 10, 10 games to get to the uh, gold medal round, it's really uh, kind of amazing. And I love the competition and even some of the sports that are not as, you know, not as well-known because... There's no big payday at the end. It's not like we're talking about, you know, NBA uh, players that are going to be in the Olympics and they're going to go back to their 10 and $20 million a year uh, jobs. There are a lot of sports in the Olympics where there's not a big, uh, there's not a big career. It's more true for women than for men as well. In, uh, even in some sports like hockey, ice hockey, uh, most of the Olympic uh, teams are made up of professional hockey players, most of them from the NHL. When we're talking about the men's side and the women's side, their college students, uh, their uh, post college that have stayed in hockey, and it's a lot, uh, it's a lot tougher. But I, uh, yeah, I love, uh, I love the Olympics. I love watching it. My brother uh, Simon, uh, a little bit older, is m- even more fanatical than I am, and he's gonna say, "What? What are you talking about me on the podcast for?" Well, you know, Simon will watch. He'll, 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 you know, he's retired now, but when he was working, he would actually take vacation during the Olympics so he could watch virtually 24-7. I mean, that's a little crazy, but it tells you the dedication that he had. But he really appreciated, as I do, this, the essence of going for greatness, um, going for, for almost perfection, which is almost what is required to actually win at the highest, at the highest levels. The pressure is crazy, of course, right? Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's something that uh, people, people are, you know, in a way, uh, attracted to. People want to see, can they actually... Can they actually do it? Because these people are doing things that the average person will never imagine and never imagine doing. But another big part that I've, um, I think we, we, we see in different uh, endeavors, you certainly see in the Olympics, uh, preparation. I mean, how many hours and days and months and years are they, are they preparing? When it comes to hockey, say women's hockey, um, they are going, they, they, they have to leave school, they have to leave jobs. Uh, they are training for six or seven months in an Olympic year and in a World Cup year, which is a non-Olympic year, they're training not much less than that. Uh, huge, huge uh, dedication. And uh, the pressure that builds, you know, it can cut both ways. You have people like, you know, um, Jimi Hendrix, uh, the greatest guitar player probably ever, uh, if not certainly in everyone's uh, top two or three when it comes to rock and roll guitar. And he was born with this incredible talent, but he nurtured it, he developed it. He would, he would uh, take notes on all kinds of different uh, chords and progressions, and, and it was almost like he made a science out of it, even though he had that kind of creative, artistic uh, capability. You know, other, other players, you know, Michael Jordan, uh, in going back to sports and uh, basketball, Tom Brady in, um, in football, first person in, last person out all, all the time. 
but you know, there are also stories where the pressure really uh, becomes too much. And I was just reading not that long ago um, about the U.S. Uh, Olympic um, Olympic ice skater, figure skater, uh, Gracie Gold, who was tremendous uh, and is trying to make a comeback now. She was the national champion a couple of years ago in the U.S., which is not a very easy thing to do, obviously. And the Olympics, uh, I think in the team competition, she won bronze, and in the individual competition, she finished uh, fourth. But the pressure eventually got, got to her, and she, she battled uh, depression and, and uh, uh, eating disorders and many other things. And it, you know, when I was reading about that, I was just thinking the sacrifice that... Uh, that these, uh, that these young people, that these kids make to try to be the absolute best at something is just, uh, just extraordinary. And so, you know, our, our, uh, my guest today um, is, uh, is Jillian Apps. Uh, Jillian is a um, two-time gold medal, uh, gold medal winner for the Canadian women's ice hockey team. And she's been part of the Canadian ice hockey team uh, for a number of years, women's team. And she's uh, an incredible athlete who just uh, retired, uh, in quotes, uh, recently. Uh, and uh, of all things, has become one of my is now one of my students at the Tuck School, and she's getting an MBA. And I found her to be um, as thoughtful off the ice as she uh, as she was scintillating on on the ice. And uh, you know, we're going to talk to her about things uh, about her life and how it turned out that she became this superstar hockey player uh, and and the transitions and the challenges and what happens when you know she was cut and she didn't make an Olympic team after dedicating her life and what was that like what was that conversation like and then finally she does get through and then she becomes a star and and has um, many goals uh, in in different uh, in different games uh, it's really it's really a fantastic story and uh, uh, and a fun one to uh, to share and uh, you know, you also you also can never tell where life takes you because life is, you know, the old uh, expression or cliche: life is full of surprises. Of course, it is. And the longer you live, the the more open you are to these surprises. I think the happier we all are. And you know, the if you know something about women's um, uh, ice hockey and the professional caliber level, or rather the Olympic caliber uh, level, there's really only two teams in the world that dominate, and that's been the case for. A long time, and that's the U.S. team and the Canadian team, and uh, uh, and it's pretty interesting that those really tough battles of, uh, of Jillian Apps and her teammates from the Canadian uh, women's team in the Olympics, almost every time in the final in the gold medal game against the U.S. team, how uh, uh, how it turns out that the captain of the U.S. team turned out to uh, to change Jillian's life. The Sidcast is all about intimate and informative conversations with all kinds of fascinating people that you uh, you may not know. Uh, until now, and now's our chance because everyone has a story, and the story of Jillian Apps is one that is really fascinating. Well, let's talk to Jillian. Welcome, Jillian Apps. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to uh, to talk to you. Of course, I'm a crazy big uh, hockey fan, so um, uh, grew up in Canada, in Montreal, and uh, um, watching uh, hockey. In fact, the first. Uh, year that I remember watching the, the NHL was 1967, um, when I believe you might know this is the last year the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm kind of setting something out here for all, all the hockey geeks that are listening, because coming from Montreal, the Montreal Canadiens have won a few times more, let's just say. <laughs> so we have to establish that type of rivalry, although uh, 
Toronto is a much better team these days. You grew up in Toronto, and you grew up in a um, kind of hockey-playing family, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Who's in your family, and what, what do they do in the hockey world? Yeah, so I uh, have an older brother and older sister, both who played hockey. Uh, my dad played hockey as well in the NHL, as did my grandfather. So um, a hockey family, but I think uh, growing up, what kind of stands out to me the most was the balance in our household. Mm. There was a lot of um, sports being played, but I think my parents did an amazing job at really establishing um, balance between athletics and academics. And I can think back to when I was younger, when we'd go visit my grandfather, and uh, he would always ask, how are um, how's school, how are your classes, and then how is hockey or how are sports? So right. I think even instilled um, mm-hmm. from from my grandparents that that was, that was a big thing in our family. Right. Even what you ask and how you ask it uh, sends a message to a kid. Yeah, Very exactly. So your, uh, is it your dad that was Sillaps? They all are Sillaps. They're yeah. all Sillaps. Yeah. So I'm trying to think about this. There's a Hall of Famer in there. Yeah, that's my grandfather. That's your grandfather. Yeah. Okay, because I was thinking, I don't remember watching a Sillaps that was a Hall of Famer, and I was watching, you know, in the late 60s and the 70s. Yeah. Your dad would have played maybe in the 70s. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, he played for Toronto or something? He played for uh, New York Rangers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and LA Kings. Do you ever talk to him about what it was like to grow up as the son of a Hall of Famer? <laughs> you know what? I, d- I, I haven't asked him much. My dad's a pretty humble guy, yeah. and I think um, as is my brother and my grandfather, and I think um, I think I was 16 years old when I realized that my grandfather had competed in the Olympics for really? pole vault, and I was amazed that no one had ever mentioned that to me before. Um, Hold on, for pole vault? For, for pole vault, yeah. This is not the same grandfather that's the Hall of Fame. It is, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it is. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, my dad has some great stories of, of when he played in the NHL, and I think um, if you ask him now, some of his better stories are mm-hmm. just coaching us as kids growing up. Uh, he was my coach when I was in high school, and mm-hmm. a time that I think is really special to me, um, where I had the influence of my dad... Um, you know, having a, a big impact on me as an athlete and as a person. Right. Do you remember, um, I'm not sure the kind of the timing on this, but when your dad was playing professional sports, he's on the road a lot. Mm-hmm. He's, he's often not, not home. Do you remember that? Uh, no, he actually retired the year before I was born. Okay. So um, my brother and sister probably remember that. Older. But uh, mm. for me, no, my dad, uh, we were living in Toronto. My dad was working in finance. And um, I think carrying on with the balance portion of things in our family. I always right. remember he always made a point to be home for dinner. And I think that, that was really mm-hmm. important for my mm-hmm. parents to have uh, our family have dinner at the table every night. Right. And uh, it's something that's still important to our family. That's that's like one of these classic cliches, but it's, you know, cliches are cliches for a reason. They're, they're real. <laughs> they're truthful. Right. So how old were you when you laced on skates for the first time? Um, gosh, I was probably... Two, three. Uh, mm-hmm. We just like every Canadian family had a <laughs> rink in our backyard, um, and I loved it. I I actually played a sport called ringette when I was younger. My older sister played, and it's kind of a the time it was like a girls' version of hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a team in my town, and I loved it. And then uh, when I was when I was twelve, there was a a hockey team that came into our town. So I just switched over with my friends to play hockey. Um, and obviously knew how to skate, but had no idea how to play the game. Didn't really know the uh-huh. rules. The and game that you played was with like a pole and a, and a, yeah. And a ring? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but not, not, not a regular hockey stick and not a puck. Right, yeah. I see. Uh, but the skating was the skating. Skating was, was the same. Was it six on six as well? Or? Yes, yeah. Okay, so uh, it's only age of 12 that you started to play hockey. Uh, hockey. 
And what kind of team was that? Just you said a team came into town. Uh, so. Yeah, it was a house league team. It was a girls team. I uh, never played with the boys, uh, which is a little different than some of my Olympic teammates. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to have a girls team, and it was I was terrible. I was the worst. <laughs> I, I was the worst person on the ice, um, and it was one of those teams where you rotate who has to play goalie every week. So mm -hmm. I took my turn doing that. Right. Um, but I just fell in love with the sport, and I think uh, I feel very fortunate that. I had that support of my family to not really pressure me into mm -hmm. knowing I needed to be the best when I was 12 or 13, but just continued right. uh, to support me in something that I love doing. So what what happened that you went from kind of being the worst player on the team to becoming an Olympic athlete? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I was really fortunate to have a, a pretty high learning curve. Mm -hmm. um, so from that point until my senior year in high school, I was, I was uh, asked to be a member of the tryout team for the 2002 Olympics. I mean, when, so when did that start at the age of? Uh, 17. Uh, but, but, but that was high school. That's when you were part of the tryout team for the Olympics. junior team or the actual Olympic The actual Olympic team. Okay. Um, and I unfortunately didn't make the team that year, but it was something that was extremely devastating to me at the time. Yeah. But I think looking back was mm -hmm. a huge moment in my life to uh, really light that fire within me. Yeah, so this is another one of these cliches people talk about, right? <laughs> that they, you know, you, you overcome adversity, you learn from failure. But, of course, again, it's true. Yeah. So do you, do you remember, like, so w when you were cut from the team, is that? Yep. So did the coach come and tell you, or is there a list that came that was put up, or how um, personal was this? Yeah, no, it's, it's really personal. If you can picture, um, I got a, a notice saying that I had a meeting at 10 a.m., and I was to come in the front of the rink and exit through the back of the rink so that no one crossed paths. Oh, boy. And when I walked in, there was a big set of double doors, walked through those, and my three coaches were sitting in the room mm -hmm. with an empty chair in front of them. And I knew the message was either going to be, your dreams come true, you're going right. to the Olympics, or I'm really sorry. Wow. Um, and unfortunately, that year it was I'm really sorry, and right. I was on a flight that night back to Toronto. Wow. And so did they give you advice, uh, counseling, what you should do? You just, <laughs> you're young and the team has got more experienced players, or they say, you know, this might not be the right thing for you, Juliet. <laughs> um, no, yeah, they gave me advice, and I think it was very honest and real, and yeah. I listened to it, yeah. uh, even though... I was a young kid and I was extremely devastated. I think I knew that I had some work to do mm -hmm. and that's what I did. Um, I was able to, you know, take what they said and go to college, play in college and, mm -hmm. and work for the next four years to make sure that didn't happen to me again. Do you remember what that advice was, what they told you actually? Um, I think it was along the lines of like specific skills that uh -huh. I needed to improve, but mm -hmm. also um, just to... I think their empathy in the situation, knowing that I was devastated, mm -hmm. and I can't imagine it was an easy message to right. give me. Right. right. Um, but I think it was just sort of continue what I'm doing and um, work hard and, and improve. These were the three coaches. Yeah. And did they end up being your coaches afterwards? Uh, one of them did. One of them stayed. Yeah. Um, and so um, it was at that stage that you said, "Okay, I'm going to go to college. I'll play college mm -hmm. hockey." I'll, yep. I'll, so you end up going to uh, Dartmouth. Where did that come from? <laughs> um, so my brother had gone to Princeton and had an, an incredible time being a student athlete, and I wanted to do the same thing. So I, I think as a high school kid, I knew I wanted to go to the Ivy League if I could mm -hmm. and kind of follow in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And 
I was looking at uh, Harvard, Dartmouth, and Princeton and had a chance to speak with the coaches, go to the schools, and see if I could envision myself there. And right. when I went to Dartmouth, I just fell in love with the campus and the coach and the girls. And mm-hmm. um, that was it. My decision was made. Wow. You just knew. I knew. It's very funny, but maybe maybe a lot of schools will have a story, a stories like this, but so many people tell me a version of that when it comes to Dharma. They have nothing to do with athletics, right? Yeah. It's like they get out of the car and they don't even have to get out of the car. They know. Right. It's, <laughs> it's such a, maybe because um, it's just different than most other places. Yeah. Uh, and it's an amazing place. It's, uh, I think it was some of the best years of my life and it was definitely the right place for me to be as an athlete and as a student. So you were, uh, I think the Ivy League doesn't give, um, um, what, Scholarships. Scholarship, official scholarships, yeah. right? Um, which a lot of other schools, most schools in the country do. Mm-hmm. So you had to get in because you were good enough to get in academically. Mm-hmm. Um, but you knew you were uh, going to try out for the hockey team or you knew you'd be able to play? Because you were already a, almost Olympic caliber at that point. Yeah, so yeah. I had um, the coach at the time, Judy Oberting, she had come to Toronto and watched some of my hockey games mm-hmm. and she was a big part of why I came here. So... Um, I knew that I would be a part of the team once I got to campus. Yeah, and she was a good coach, wasn't she? Great coach, yeah. What made her great, do you think? And now I want you to put on your business school <laughs> thinking cap as well. You're, you're uh, learning about leadership, not just living leadership. Um, I actually only had her for one year because after my freshman year, she retired from coaching. But I think um, she's still a very good friend of mine right now, and, I, yeah. and I've told her this, but I think... Um, she was a phenomenal recruiter, and I, in mm-hmm. college sport, that's a big part of yeah. um, how you have a great team. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was phenomenal. She made a point and took the time to really get to know the athletes mm-hmm. and to make you feel like she cared about you. Right. And that was the biggest thing. She was uh, a person who cared. Right. I'm pausing with that because, I mean, that's kind of a profound statement because it turns out it's true for almost everything in life. Uh, so I'm a teacher. I'm a professor, actually one of your uh, <laughs> teachers at Dartmouth, as it turns out, at tech school. But I learned a long time ago that when you care, even if you make some mistakes, even if you're not naturally gifted as a speaker, let's say, uh, if you care, students know that, mm-hmm. and they will work with you. They will, they, will, they will be on your side. It's really a powerful thing, and, and it's so simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it has to be authentic. It's got to be real. Um, and it makes such a big difference. I mean, nowadays, maybe we, we talk about empathy as a version of that, mm-hmm. as a big kind of big buzzword and I think still a, still a powerful one. Mm-hmm. So uh, you started as a freshman yes. here at Dartmouth and uh, um, defense... W- forward. Forward. Yep. I was about to ask you, is it defense man or defense woman when you're <laughs> in a woman's state? <laughs> it <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, and... Um, were that so? You said that your coach at that time was a great recruiter. Were there other freshmen right in the team as well, or you were the only one? Yeah, there were other ones as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. at the time, our team was very good. I think we were ranked second in the nation, <clears throat> and um, yeah, there were a couple girls on the team who were on Team Canada with me as well. A few that were on Team USA, uh, whether it was their junior team or their senior team. So mm-hmm. Dartmouth has had a pretty good run and. Um, has some some great alumni who I had the opportunity to play with. Right, right. And I remember actually, um, this was after which Olympics was that? Uh, Vancouver. So that would have been twenty ten. Were you in that Olympics? I was. You yes. were in the gold medal winning team. Yes. 
Okay, so <laughs> there was a fundraiser in Montreal that my older brother was invited to. So I went up because uh, I got a ticket to go with him. You maybe were there. I was at Windsor Station. Okay. And it was uh, also the Bell Center, the hockey arena. It was a big gala. And for two hours beforehand, it was hors d'oeuvres, and the athletes would be mingling. And I remember, I don't know who I who said this or how it came out that I was a professor at Dartmouth. It must have been one of your classmates <laughs> that said Dartmouth. And she heard it. She made a beeline for me. This Dartmouth is Dartmouth. And then I have a picture of me with, like, the whole team. <laughs> uh, you may very That's well amazing. be amazing, uh, yeah. That's very funny. Um, so um, uh, did you win the uh, Ivy League championship? During we that did, season? yeah. Tw- I, we won it twice while in my four years that I was here. Yeah. What, so what was challenging for you coming over to college level? Hockey and, co- and, and life, I mean... You know, living living somewhere else. Uh, it's America. Uh, student athlete has a lot of a lot of work, not just regular work, but uh, you know, you spend a lot of time in the gym and, and the rink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's cr- a crucial four years. It's where I grew up, um, mm-hmm. and I think I was lucky enough to be surrounded by amazing teammates and mm-hmm. classmates, and I think. Um, I learned a lot about time management, a lot about um, priorities and having to figure out a way to get everything done. And I think it was really good for me. I also, at the time, was playing with Team Canada as well. So I missed a lot of school um, for various tournaments where I had to fly to Europe during the middle of a semester mm. and come back. And I think um, it taught me a lot about having to have hard conversations, approaching my professors, explaining my situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel really fortunate that I was able to to have amazing people that understood my situation. Right, right. And so uh, you you made Team Canada, the Olympic team, mm-hmm. or World Cup slash Olympic team, because it wasn't always an Olympic year. Yep. When you were, it was the following year? My freshman year, yeah. So it was only really one cycle, one year, to yeah. get back to it. Yep. Wow. And uh, and you you specifically worked on some of those, I guess they were hockey skills, yep. um, that those coaches wanted you to, wanted you to work on. Yep, and I think um, we had to try out for the team every year. So even though I made it my freshman year, uh, the Olympics were still my biggest goal. So um, I knew that I couldn't become complacent and I had to continue to get better because uh, everyone was getting better around me and uh, the Americans were getting better and the rest of our competitors were getting better. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I made the team in 2006 for that Olympics where – uh, it kind of came full circle from the 2002 disappointment uh, individually, and uh, it was amazing. I was sitting in that chair, and, you know, getting the, a different message from my coaches saying, congratulations, you're going to the Olympics. Do they have the same setup? Same what? setup, oh yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, no, it was much better in 2006. Wow. Oh, that, that's great. That's great. So 2006, 2010, 2014? Yes. Yeah, and, and you retired... I retired After in uh, the Olympics. Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, so how did you manage the, that though? Because you were traveling, as you say, a lot. Uh, how many years did it take you to finish Dartmouth as an undergrad? Um, five years. That's so not, that's not much yeah. more, given you were away a lot. Yeah, not too bad. So, in um, I took my senior year off to train full time mm-hmm. uh, with the national team in Calgary, Alberta, for the 2006 Olympics. And then after the Olympics, uh, I came back to Dartmouth and finished my final year. So what does the training look like? So you're on the road for months, I think. Yes. And you're playing, um, who, who are you playing? So we lived in Calgary, Alberta, which means everyone that wasn't from there left their job, school, husbands, families, yep. um, and moved there. We yep. live with teammates, and 
we played midget AAA boys teams. So there's a league in Alberta uh, that that roughly falls to like 14 or 15 year old boys, and we played in their league. Um, Meant a lot of time on the bus in uh, the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, but uh, we were always welcomed by a great crowd at the local rinks. And I think it was a really good thing for us. It was a great thing for the boys' teams. And it um, was a great reminder for our team um, that we represented our country. And we got to see mm-hmm. how we were able to impact small towns and young girls. And, mm. um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. So I want to talk to you about that impact in a moment, but I'm curious about the actual games. Mm-hmm. Did you beat these 14-year-old guys? Uh, we were probably half and half. Really? Yeah, so they were, they were great competition for us, and um, they were fast. They were the best in the province at that age, mm-hmm. um, and they did uh, a lot for us in our preparation for the Olympics. Did any of those players actually move on and get into the NHL? Yeah, there really? are, actually, yeah. Um, there's a few that I've, I've noticed throughout the years that wow. played in, the, in that league when we were playing against them. You played against future NHL yeah. players. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I was wondering about that, because there's no, there's no real competition when you're at the Olympic level, certainly in, for, for women's ice hockey. I mean, there's the U.S. team. Yeah. But you would play the U.S. team quite a lot in exhibitions yes. also, right? Yes, Like how many times, for example, in an Olympic um, We would probably year? play them um, seven or eight times in an Olympic year leading up to the yeah. Olympics in February. Right. But, uh, yeah, in those times that we weren't playing them, the boys were, were a great competition for us. Right. So... Um, you talked about the impact. You went to a lot of little towns. So you saw this was all in Alberta, Calgary area, or mm-hmm. further afield. Yeah, mostly there. So uh, do you? Uh, and you mentioned something about you know you'd see little girls that come out that, that you guys were role models for them. Yeah. Do you remember any any conversations or any specific uh, kind of anecdotes about when you were um, doing that and talking to maybe parents who were saying, "Boy, I would love my little Lucy to uh, <laughs> be able to be on the team one day," or or what have you? Yeah, I think. Um, it was amazing. I played on the national team for 12 years, and so I was able to see the sport grow through that time. And I think uh-huh. um, the biggest thing for me was not only realizing that we were role models for the young girls, but we also, I would look at our, our we would sign autographs after a game, and uh, I would look down the autograph line and realize that it wasn't just young girls anymore. It was young boys, uh-huh. and it was grown men and grown women, and there was a fan base that was starting around. Right. Canadians have always loved hockey, but I think um, I felt r- part of something really special where we were sort of bringing the bringing the country along in our journey, especially after Vancouver. That was that was really amazing. I think we were able to touch a lot of people because um, it was in Canada. It was in Canada, yeah, right. and and we felt it. We felt it coast to coast the support that we had as athletes, and I think um, that's the. One of the best things about being a hockey player as a full-time job is yeah. you're in a country where people love love what you're doing and really mm-hmm. support you. Do people still recognize you sometimes? Because you haven't played now in a few years. Yeah, right? uh, not as much anymore. Yeah. If but I, they did. Yeah, they if, did. I'm, if I'm in a rink, depending where I am, Yeah, um, but not as much. I'm old now. <laughs> uh, well, if you're old, what does that mean? <laughs> but okay, uh, we're talking with Jillian Apps. Let's take a short break and come right back. We're back with Jillian Apps. Jillian, we were talking about your background, growing up in Toronto a little bit, and uh, your hockey family, and some of the journey that got you to Dartmouth. And I, I want to go back to that for, for a minute, because uh, it occurred to me on that team, you said the Dartmouth team was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, you won a couple of national championships when you were, you were on the team. So you have Canadian Olympic athletes on the team, you have U.S. Olympic athletes on the team, and then you have other players that are all probably pretty good. Uh, so a team is a collaboration. Mm-hmm. you got to work together. But... It, it occurs to me that 
there's a competitive element as well uh, among amongst people on the same team. And mm-hmm. lo- in my experience, a lot of people in business they don't like to talk about that. They they I think it exists, and I'm going to ask you whether you, whether you agree and, and what form it might be. But I, I found a lot of um, executives they don't want they don't they don't like the idea of talking about yeah. the fact that there really is competition between people. Um, and if you don't talk about it, it doesn't mean it goes away. So, anyways, what's uh, what was your experience about that? Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. As I was just listening to you speak, I think about my time at Dartmouth, and I think about my time on the national team. And in both situations, of course, there's competition within the team, whether it's for playing time, mm-hmm. different positions, or even a spot on the roster. And I think, um, in my mind, competition is is great. I think it's what makes us better mm-hmm. and was one of the reasons that I came to Dartmouth, knowing that um, I wanted the people that I was practicing against every day that were on my team mm-hmm. to be better than me because I wanted to uh, play against the best every day, practice against the best, and that's um, the way you improve. Right. Um, and then mm-hmm. there's also the element of at the end of the day, we are a team. And sometimes your role changes on teams. And I think about on the national team, um, you know, we were constantly competing for a spot on the roster, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to help out the person that is in direct competition with me for a spot. I think that's where, you know, character really comes into play, Mm -hmm. where I'm willing to help somebody who I know Mm -hmm. very well could take my job. But that's part of being a team. You want to sometimes you know, sacrifice personal success for the success of the team. And sometimes that means, um, you know, stepping back and being content when other people can do your job better. Yeah, that's uh, So naturally I'm thinking about it in a business context. There are a lot of um, managers and executives who would have a hard time with that, Yeah, as you probably well know. Yep. Yeah, it's really, uh, really interesting being able to help somebody else get better. And they might take your job. Right, yep. Um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I mean, that's really something to think about. Uh, but that's how you also create the world's best, the world's best teams. Right. You talk about practicing against really talented players. So you wanted, you wanted to surround yourself with great, uh, yes. with great talent. Yeah. Because it makes you, it helps you get better. Yep. Um, you know, there was a study years ago about, I think it was college basketball, mm-hmm. um, where college basketball teams play a wide variety of teams. Some are in their league, but because it's a longer season, they play um, an unbalanced schedule. Not every team in the same league, like in the SEC or where, what have you, they don't play the same teams. Mm-hmm. And so you actually could measure. Um, the strength of your opponent's schedule. And I think it actually factors into one of the algorithms about your ranking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the reason why it got into these algorithms is that the study showed that you actually will perform, perform, more likely perform better in the NCAA March Madness, the tournament at the end, the stronger your schedule was. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you, you, li- you kind of. Yeah. That's part of your philosophy, really. It's, it's really kind of, it's really interesting. There's so many examples of this idea about how much benefit there is when a manager, when a leader, when an athlete can be surrounded by really world class, great talent, even mm-hmm. better than they are. Uh, but so many people are afraid of that right. as well. Um, yeah. So uh, back to the Olympics. Yep. So um, the first Olympic Olympics games you were at. Uh, was in... Italy, Torino. It was in Torino, and that was 2006. Yes. And do you remember skating out on the ice the first time? I do. Um, And I remember even before that, walking into our dressing room and seeing my equipment in my stall that uh, just set up the way it is every day, but 
the difference was I had the Olympic rings on my helmet. And I remember thinking, wow, wow. this is pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I think what stuck out for me even more than stepping on the ice was the opening ceremonies where uh, I had always you know, had memories of sitting on my couch in my basement with my family watching that as a kid. Mm-hmm. And now that was me. And I was part of not only the hockey team, but the whole Canadian Olympic team walking together into that stadium. And um, I had no idea that the host country walks in last. So they, they introduce every country in alphabetical order and all the athletes come in. And then uh, in Torino, they announced Italy and the place just erupted. <laughs> and I remember getting goosebumps and then Stopping for a second to think, wow, in Vancouver, that is going to be us. That's going to be Four our team. Four years later. Yeah. That's right. um, so the opening ceremonies is a pretty magical thing to be a part of. And um, some of my favorite memories overall of my Olympic experience come from kind of the start of each games um, that I've been a part of. And so um, when, you, uh, when you go to the, to the, to the rink and you, and you play, um, I guess because Canadian fans are traveling everywhere. You've probably had a lot of people in the stands. Uh, <laughs> and you were the best. Canada and U.S. are the two best, two best teams. That was another example of Canada-U.S. in the final, wasn't it? Canada-Sweden in the final, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's the only time it's happened. Um, there was an odd turn of events, and the U.S. lost to Sweden in a shootout in the semifinal. Uh-huh. So we played Sweden, which we weren't prepared for at all either. Because um, you assumed it would be the American Yeah, players. yeah. So uh, What was the score in the final? You know, I don't remember. Um, I'm not great with scores, but it was it was maybe like five one. Close. Um, Yeah, and I think it was a bit of an odd situation because we were happy to win gold. Sweden was actually very happy to win silver, right? Um, And the U.S. was obviously devastated to win bronze, right? Um, Right. Because at this point, right now in women's hockey, it's it's kind of gold or bust. That's the way people think about it. Right. That's a winner take all society where where. Well, actually, for hockey, men and women, it's the same yeah. as for Canadians. Yes. Uh, which makes it unbelievable pressure. Yeah. I mean, I think especially of the men's team where there is more competition. Yeah. You have five or six teams that actually are good enough to win yeah. every, almost every Olympics. Yeah. And if you don't win the gold medal, you have failed. It's right. mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah it's uh, unbelievable pressure. How did you handle the pressure? Yeah, it is. And I think there's a lot of pressure to try to win a gold medal. And there's even more pressure to defend a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Vancouver in 2010, we were defending a Olympic gold medal in Canada on home ice, uh, which I think adds an even bigger element to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think the pressure we use to our advantage. And I think uh, we spent a lot of time with our team, sports psychologists, just talking through so many different scenarios of... Um, we made a list of all the potential things that could go wrong mm-hmm. um, to just, you know, being so precise with our preparation. And I think we we took a lot of the pressure off ourselves with the confidence we had in our preparation, mm-hmm. both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how we handled it. Mm-hmm. We, um, we were so fortunate, like I said earlier, to have such an amazing country supporting us and we felt it from coast to coast we felt it in the building in vancouver but um it was exciting it was an amazing thing to be a canadian athlete in vancouver and Mm. and we had to do the same thing in sochi defending a gold medal again um against a very strong american team and i think um it's it was the exact same thing every every olympics is different but i think our preparation Mm -hmm. and the way we approach 
pressure is uh, is the same. And so you spent your team spent a lot of time with sports psychologists. Yes, which has become a very big thing over the last decades in in all professional sports. Yep. I think you know the top. Uh, tennis athletes carry their own part of their team yep. is somebody like that. So what does a sports psychologist do? How is he <laughs> or she or they help? Um, we had a sports psychologist named Peter Jensen, and he was uh, phenomenal. He was part of our team, and mm. um, he came on the road with us. Mm. He was around most of the year, and I think uh, he does everything from being um, holding group sessions with the entire team, mm-hmm. some that were 10 minutes long, and then they were done. Some that were mm-hmm. a full day workshop um, to having individual sessions. So some people like it more than others. Some people feel like they need it more than others. Right. Um, and you can imagine in a team, people are very different in how they prepare, how they handle Definitely. stress. Right. And he made it very, um, he made it very much okay to be uncomfortable with the pressure and be able to talk to him about it. And mm. I think that um, just that alone really helped our team. So he didn't want you to pretend something is not true. The pressure is there, right. and you can't like pretend it doesn't exist. Right. You just gotta you gotta deal with it. Yes. Did did you were you one of the athletes that took advantage kind of some one on one with him? I wasn't. Uh-huh. I wasn't. <laughs> you were, you I were wish good. I wish I could tell you I was, but I think we had a great relationship, yeah, and yeah. Um, there were definitely times when I had coffee with him or had a quick chat with him. But mm-hmm. I think. Um, I got a lot out of our team sessions and felt like I was in a in a pretty good spot mentally where mm-hmm. as an athlete I was superstitious. I didn't really want to change up my routine. Right, right. That's actually a hockey thing too. Yeah. Right? In the playoffs, <laughs> nobody shaves. Right, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, like, uh, you used to hear they use the same socks, but yeah. I cannot imagine that after <laughs> playing a, <laughs> more than one game. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, what you said is, that, that you got this tremendous sense of confidence from your preparation, mm-hmm. which is also, um, I think it's something that translates to the business world pretty pretty easily, actually, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of mistakes people make, and your job is online. Sometimes, you know, if you're very senior in a company, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of jobs could be online. Mm-hmm. And so um, preparation, knowing that you did everything under the sun, that's really what you're getting at, yes. right? Yeah. Um, it, it gives you a sense of, of, of peace. Yep. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, and so this is more of a question, but you know that, you, well, did you know that you could lose? Yes, absolutely. I yeah. think um, that is something that you have to acknowledge that mm-hmm. there is going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser, and you have to do everything possible to make sure you come out of the game as the winner. And mm-hmm. If you do come out the loser, you have to know that you've done everything possible that you could have done. Right. Um, and you just fell out and right. you fell short. It's a no regrets philosophy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a little, maybe it sounds like an odd kind of analogy, but a cousin of mine, uh, her mom is quite uh, old in her 90s, and uh, they spent a lot of time together. And my cousin, who is, um, I guess she's mid, mid-60s, mid let's say, uh, she said to me that she doesn't want to leave anything unsaid mm-hmm. with her mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, bad, whatever. She wants to have as deep a relationship as she can because mm-hmm. she knows, like all, like all of us, you know, her mom's not going not gonna to live forever, and she's 92 or 93 now. Um, and, and when that time comes, she doesn't want to feel like she should have done something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, a, it's a kind of an odd 
analogy. But yeah. it's the same type of idea, I think, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I've, I've thought about it a lot as I've transitioned out of sport into thinking about business, how as an athlete, you never change up things at the last minute. Mm. It's just if you have, mm. you are prepared and you're pretty consistent every time mm-hmm. in what you're doing. And it is only when you change things at the last minute do you risk getting flustered and getting yeah. it wrong. And I think, right. um, you know, it happens a lot with people are rearranging their slide deck five minutes before <laughs> they're going into a, a huge meeting. And mm-hmm. um, I sort of try to keep that in my mind as I go mm-hmm. through different situations, new situations for me in business um, where I can learn from my athletic experience. Right, right. I mean, if you think, if you think that it's a problem, even if it isn't, it is. Right, right. right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Right, but, yep. Yeah. Um, it's almost like a, a placebo effect of sorts yep. uh, where you use it to your advantage. Um, maybe that's what the superstitious, you know, follow the same routine is, is part yeah. of the same type of thing. As far as we know, it doesn't account for winning, but maybe it does. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so um, in Vancouver... Uh, skating on the ice for the gold medal game, and that was against the U.S. Yes. Uh, team. Yep. Um, the crowds are going nuts, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of red, white, and blue. Red and white, actually. Yep. Red, white, and blue, too, probably, but yep. red and white for the Canadian flag. Um, and you had already been to the Olympics. Uh, you had been on the team for a long time. You had been in Vancouver at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was towards the real end of the whole tournament, the whole Olympics, I think. Um, what was going through your, your head? I mean, are you actually thinking of something or you're in, in the flow, like, you know, almost like that's a mindfulness. You're, you're just in the moment and you, you don't have to think about anything. Or are you thinking about something or are you recognizing, you know, wow, this is it. Kind of what you said earlier, you know, when you went in the, in the locker room in, um, in Torino and you saw the, the Olympic rings on mm-hmm. your helmet. Yeah, I think uh, in Vancouver I was a little bit older, a little bit wiser. <laughs> um, and... In the final game, there was nothing. I mean, I definitely recognized the how amazing the um, the fans were, but I think it was business as usual. There was nothing different in that game than there was in the game before, in the game before, mm-hmm. in terms of preparation, mindset, or the job that I had to do. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, a specific job to do. And my teammates and my coaches were relying on me to show up that day and be my very best. Mm-hmm. And especially in a gold medal game, everything that I had done and everything our team had done leading up to that game was focused on us being our very best mm-hmm. for those three hours. Mm-hmm. And that is how specific it was from our um, our trainers giving us, you know, making us do bike sprints in June. We had to do bike sprints on June 3rd because in February on the gold medal game, we were going to be the best we could be. So mm-hmm. it was so scientific mm-hmm. that we just kind of trusted everything to mm-hmm. come into place for the final game. So I wasn't nervous and I wasn't sort of in my own head about what was actually on the line. I yeah. was just in a really calm, great place. Have you ever played on a team at, at an Olympic caliber level or it could be Dartmouth level, which was pretty close, mm-hmm. uh, where that didn't happen? Uh, either your own team where you'd have more insight or, or the opponent. Um, whether it led to, I don't know, panic or nerves or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've every team I've been on has gone through games like that, um, especially in the Olympic year. There's mm-hmm. inevitably a time during the year, whether we're playing against the boys or playing against in an exhibition game against mm-hmm. 
the United States where it's a terrible game. We we didn't show up. We are playing terrible, mm-hmm. and those are the moments where we learn the most. It's mm. it's sort of the dark days behind the scenes where we have to kind of claw our way back out, mm-hmm. figure out, really gut check what went wrong, mm-hmm. what is going on, um, and those are good. They, they happen for a reason, and we need them to happen in order for us mm-hmm. to kind of be our best when we really need to be. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that those things can happen, but as you work your way through the Olympic tournament, it doesn't take long where a loss is the end of it. Right. So there's no margin there's for error. No. Once and you're there, there's no time. So that's not where the learning experience no. is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Um, so, um, and you played, um, you played hockey uh, professionally as well mm-hmm. um, during your Olympic years. Yeah. Um, and that was in a um, women's professional hockey league in, 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 in Canada. Yep. And uh, first of all, what was the league called? Uh, it's called the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Okay. And why do you think no one knows that? <laughs> um, I mean, compared well, to the NHL, or, yeah, you know, I, uh, it, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think women's hockey is gaining a lot of momentum, but I think it's just not where it should be right now. Yeah. Um, and I think if you ask a lot of the elite players that are currently playing mm-hmm. um, on. Canadian national team on the American national team, they'll say the same thing, that um, there needs to be um, a professional league that is has a lot of momentum behind it, mm-hmm. and it's happening. It's better now than it was five years ago. There's mm-hmm. a professional league yeah. uh, that's based in America. There's another one that's based in Canada, and um, I think in probably 10 years from now, you'll see a very strong single league mm-hmm. that more people know about, um, but... It's just, it's growing pains right now. It just seems like it's taken forever. Yeah. Um, and it's not like there's equality between men and women in most sports. But some seem to have made a big leap. I'm thinking about, you know, what first prize checks look like, I think, for, um, say, in the tennis uh, Grand Slams. I mean, I actually, I'm not sure, but I think they're equal now. Yeah. Um, and what a, what, a shift, uh, what a shift that is. And um, in basketball, there's a WNBA that I think yep. is pretty. I mean, they have a TV deal; they're pretty well known. Yep. Um, in um, in women's soccer, a very robust sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been uh, an Olympic sport for a long time. Um, so I don't know whether part of it is you know, certainly in the U.S. Hockey is not nearly as big a sport as you know basketball or football or, or um, you know baseball. Yeah. Um, but um, but even if you compare it to some other other um, other elite sports, uh, there's just a really big gap, uh, a really big gap there. And so kind of, to me, it's still a little bit surprising. Uh, from a business point of view, it looks like an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that's exactly it. The talent is there, mm-hmm. and they're just sort of playing with the business plan right now to find the right one. Um, yeah. I think there's some hope, too, in some European countries that are mm-hmm. investing a lot in their grassroots programs to strengthen um, hockey in their countries as well. But, um, yeah, we have some great advocates in our sport that are really fighting hard mm-hmm. to, to break the ceilings and try to mm-hmm. um, gain a lot of respect and, and, you know, get some money into women's hockey. Um, but it's just taking a little bit of time. Because I think about, um, say, a gaming, as in um, video games. Yep. I just got, got this exploded. It's a Madison Square Garden could be sold out <laughs> to see some... Yeah. Uh, to see some match and, and then people are watching on the internet, somebody else playing. Um, 
And I think they're on their way to getting some type of TV deal for real, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I suppose, if you're you know 16 or 18 year old guy, you're saying, yeah, so what? What's the big deal? Of course, that's the way it is. But to me, uh, I find that mind-boggling. That's going on. But women's hockey, which has been around a long time, which is a team sport, which has, which is a proven model. Right. Um, certainly, hockey is a sport, as an exciting sport, and certainly, you know, women, women athletes in a lot of fields, and women's hockey uh, has not gotten off. Uh, has not really not taken off. Yeah. It's interesting, but I do think that in uh, in the next ten years there will be a. I'm confident that there there'll be a women's professional league that's that's supported by the NHL. Jillian Apps, let's take a short break, and we'll come back for our last segment. We're back with our last segment with Jillian Apps. Uh, Jillian, you are now at the Tuck School of Business. Yep. At Dartmouth, you're uh, you're taking an MBA degree. What? ever possessed you to do such a thing? <laughs> you know, I've been asked that a lot. Yes. Um, I think when I retired from sport in 2014 after the, the Olympics in Russia, I knew I wanted to do other things outside of sport, and I didn't necessarily have the knowledge or the tools to get there. So uh, my older brother had played hockey, and he went to... Um, business school when he retired and it just was a really good transition point for him. Mm -hmm. So, um, he was a great mentor for me through the process of deciding where mm -hmm. I wanted to go and, um, ended up back at Dartmouth, which was, uh, double dose, yeah. double dose. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's been amazing. And I think, uh, I was hesitant a little bit, um, whether I was going to come back, just whether it was the right move for me. Uh, to come back? To come back to Tuck. Uh, yeah, not to Dartmouth, but just to be uh, in business school for two MBA, years. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but I think I was here for not even a week where it's like I cannot believe I was even debating doing <laughs> this because it's just been such a, a fantastic thing for me and I've had the opportunity, as you know, to be a part of such an incredible community here at Tuck and meet... Um, incredible people from all over the world and, and learn from, from amazing professors like right. yourself. Well, that's a good one. We'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to put that one up on the trailer. Um, what were the other options you were thinking about, if not business school? Uh, I was coaching at Boston College, yeah. actually, mm -hmm. for a year. As women's was, hockey team? Women's hockey team, yeah, yeah as I was trying to, to, to decide my next step. Which is a big hockey school. It is, yeah, and uh, had the opportunity to coach under and with uh, two other amazing coaches where I learned uh, a ton mm. about coaching and more about hockey and mm -hmm. just uh, about myself. And I had a phenomenal experience there. Right. Um, but I think I've always been someone that loves to be a little bit uncomfortable and loves to learn. Mm. And I think that that was exactly what business school was going to provide for me and has provided for mm -hmm. me is really stepping out of my comfort zone. And after being out of out of undergrad for 10 years, finding myself in a capital markets class and <laughs> corporate finance and being in situations where I never thought I would be uh, has been really great for me. Yeah. And so those are topics that you would not have come across before. No. <laughs> right. But you're obviously very smart. You're smart enough to get into Dartmouth in the first place. You can, you can figure it out. But um, yeah, those are, those are not your typical uh, activities. So you're, um, you're going to be graduating um, yeah. and um uh, very soon. Yep. And um, what are you going to do? That's a great question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm still figuring well, that out. How can I help? Tell me yeah. what you're looking for. <laughs> um, yeah, I had the opportunity to work at a hedge fund in Connecticut uh, in the summer, which was a great experience for me and a very... Hedge fund. 
yeah, a, uh, a very new world. Um, yeah. And I worked in their general management area, uh, similar to an internal consultant. Which, oh, I see. Not the um, finance side, not, not the, the investment side. No. Um, so, yeah, that was a great experience. And right now I'm just um, sort of exploring my options, whether I want to go back to Canada or stay in the United States. Um, have a few few different opportunities that I'm I'm mm. uh, debating between right now, but we'll see. It's right. it's to be determined. <laughs> and what um, what are some of the biggest? Uh, are there any similarities between being an Olympic athlete and being a student at a top business school? Yeah, I think a ton. Um, I I think I have thought so many times in the last year and a half of situations that I was in as an athlete mm-hmm. that I can relate to at Tuck. And um, I think there's a there's an element of uh, teamwork. There's an element of, like I said, being pushed out of your comfort zone and being able to perform in that area mm-hmm. and um, collaboration and right. just being able to, you know, be pushed every single day to be better than you were the day before. Right. Um, right. And that's something that I appreciate so much about Tuck. I've learned a ton about myself, but also learned a lot about how to work with others, how to work with others in a business setting, um, in a classroom setting, and definitely in areas where um, we can help each other mm. all to get better. Okay, so this is really interesting because you're used to being the best. Mm-hmm. When you're Olympic caliber, you're the best. Right. And you're surrounded with absolute peers. Yep. Um, you go to a business school, everyone is great, but it's a little different scenario. Mm-hmm. And you are probably not the best at everything that right. you're walking in the room. Right, right. How'd you deal with that transition? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's very accurate. I think some of my classes like, wow, I <laughs> could possibly be the worst. Um, no, well, I, I didn't mean it that way. No, but. <laughs> no. Um, I think the, uh, yeah, it was an interesting transition. And I think um, that's where I very much valued my classmates. And mm-hmm. um, it taught me a lot about networking, being able to find who is the best in this. Mm-hmm. And maybe I can buy them lunch and they can teach me something right. um, that'll help me in. And at some point, maybe I can give back to them and help them in some way. So, Yeah. yeah. And do you think the transition then from uh, elite athlete to um, life afterwards, business school, is is it common, first of all? For I mean, you mentioned your brother, but mm-hmm. um, other classmates, other uh, members of the Canadian team over, over time, have they gone back to business school or like, what, have, what have they done? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as common... Um, I don't think on the on the female side, and mm-hmm. and um, I'm just trying to think. People have gone on to do a lot of amazing things, whether mm-hmm. they stay involved in sport, um, right. coaching, or on the grassroots level, or sometimes they, um, you know, are back in the Oli- Olympic movement, um, mm-hmm. or they go on and do completely other things. But it is a really really difficult thing, and I and I know before I retired, um, some girls that had retired before me said, you know, it, you have to start thinking about it because it is a really hard thing yeah, right and at the time I was like oh yeah yeah it'll be fine I'll deal <laughs> with that when it comes but right. it is it's really difficult and I've spoken to um, men's hockey players on the men's side that were playing professionally that wanted mm-hmm. to transition into business and even just my my um, colleagues from Dartmouth who pl- I put undergrad with they had the same thing mm-hmm. it's it's really hard to leave behind something that you love that you have done your entire life mm-hmm. and for me I was 30 years old and continuously got the question like what else are you good at and (laughs) that was very hard to swallow Mm -hmm. and I think 
part of the reason was because I didn't know. Right. I mean, most people, to be fair, are not that good at anything in their lives. So <laughs> don't don't be too hard yeah. on yourself. Yeah. But uh, so a lot, in, in business, people love competitive people. Team, you know, of course, Tuck is known as a team-oriented place. But being able to manage teams, build teams, work well in teams is a critical skill acro- across the board. Of course, that's central to what uh, what you've done. And then the competitiveness that um, you mentioned your job uh, last summer in hedge funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that th- that's an industry that loves. I mean, they breathe competitive. They they love it. Yeah. Um, and most people would probably say that that competitiveness uh, is a great great uh, thing. So there's two areas that are central um, um, criteria or attributes or capabilities that um, you need to be successful in in. Uh, Almost any field, mm-hmm. and you you walked you walked away with them, but yet it's still a very difficult transition. Yeah, is it a? Is, do you need a sports <laughs> psychologist to come back? Is that part? Of I this? think so. I need to. I need to sign up for a few one-on-one sessions. Yeah, <laughs> better late than never. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I think there's something there's something to because when you were talking about you know some of your friends were saying you know just wait you got to start thinking about retirement. I uh, think about very famous you know professional athletes. Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, didn't the best of the best of the best and hard time retiring and didn't work so well in the last couple of years. That's actually common in professional, yeah. uh, for professional athletes. And, uh, and I've always wondered, you know, is it that, that competitive drive? Is that what it is? Is it the fact that, you know, everyone loves you? You're mm-hmm. never going to be loved more yeah. as the person. And who doesn't like, who doesn't like that? Um, have you thought about what kind of the underlying um, kind of psychological mechanism, not necessarily for you or you alone, but for Anyone who's been really great at something, we're mm-hmm. thinking about a- athletics mm-hmm. as a place where there's very clear metrics. You know if somebody's great or not because yeah. there's a record there. Um, that makes that transition so hard. Yeah, I think I would agree with exa- exactly what you just said. And also I would add in passion. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, mm-hmm. for me I was so passionate about hockey and um, felt so fortunate that it was my job and I was mm-hmm. able to compete at the highest level. Right. And then stepping away from that, I immediately was trying to think, what else am I passionate about? Yeah. And right. you don't necessarily find that again. Mm. And um, so right. I did a lot of soul searching on what else, not necessarily what else could I be passionate about, but mm-hmm. um, what can I take, as you were mentioning, what can I take from sport that I mm-hmm. learned and where can I be a value add in business? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's difficult. It's tricky. Now, this thing about um, the passion that you mentioned is really important. You know, I, I work with a lot of different managers, executives, along with a lot of MBA students and others. And people that have a job where they just love what they're doing. So it's not work. You mm-hmm. kind of said the same thing. Yep. It's, it's not work. It's, it's just kind of what I do. And it's, there's no separation between work and you know, the famous work-life balance. There's no separation there because it's the same thing. And I want it that way. I love that. Um, trying to find that in a career, I mean, that's the advice I give people, actually. Is there anything that could potentially get you there where, and I just say, you know, where um, Sunday night feels just as good as Friday night? Right. Um, and um, I've been lucky, in, like crazy lucky in finding it and been doing it for decades. And I know not everybody can get that because there are different people, different stages of life, different requirements, different financial needs. But there's, there, there are a lot of people that have that potential. Uh, and the other thing is, you don't always know. Mm-hmm. You knew hockey. That was kind of, I don't know if it was easy for you to know that because you were doing other sports. and you know. But still, you had that in your DNA and, and yeah. you liked it right from the beginning. 
But I think there, uh, I, I don't think it's automatic that you or anyone else necessarily knows. I mean, sometimes, but, mm -hmm. uh, but you got to try it. You got to experiment. You got to do a lot of different things. That's why I think the, uh, um, when people think about crafting a career, um, some people go straight through. They know what they're going to do, step one, step two, step three. But I think there's a lot of value to doing a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Because of that, there's an experimentation element. There's a variability element. And you discover, you yeah, know, I don't like that so much. I like this. Uh, I don't like that. And you start to combine it. It's hard to do because it's slower. Right. <laughs> but uh, in a, uh, say, in your situation or in any MBA student, you have a summer internship that you had done last summer and you did it, and that was, a sa that was something. And then all the work you did before, and especially the fact that you knew about coaching. So um, um, all that's by way of saying that there's some value to the muddling through, mm -hmm. which I find is a lesson most... Um, MBA students hate. Uh, they're not used to muddling through anything. <laughs> right. But that's actually what life is. Uh, you kind of learn along the way. Uh, I want to ask you about something something else about your, your life that's uh, interesting, which is that you got married not that long ago. Yep. And uh, you got married to another ice hockey player. Yep. And it turns out that uh, she uh, played for the arch enemy, the U.S. <laughs> ice hockey team. And you played against her in, in, in the Olympics even, didn't you? I did, yeah, twice. Uh, so, okay, first of all, uh, okay, how'd you meet? I guess you met at center ice with elbows <laughs> yeah. at each other. <laughs> um, yeah, we just, we met through friends in the hockey community, yeah. and um, definitely an interesting dynamic, I think. We get asked a lot about, how does that work? You're, yeah. You play on the Canadian team, and um, she plays on the American team, but I think we have always been very good about keeping our professional mm -hmm. and private life completely separate. Yep. Um, so when the puck drops, there's no difference. I think um, there's a number of times where I can, I can picture us um, fighting in the corner or <laughs> she throws a punch to my head, something like that. But um, that, that happened? That happened, yeah. Nice. Um, it's, a little, no. it's a little, little spat before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think, uh, no, I think both of us are so professional that it was, uh, it was never an issue for us when we were playing against each other. And yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely a unique situation, though, I would it's, say. <laughs> it, it's, it's so in the, this would have been 2010 and 14 yes. Olympics? Yeah. Vancouver and Sochi, yes. you, you were, it was Canada-U.S. finals yes. in both those? Yeah. And you were both on your respective teams? Yes. Wow, that must just be really a crazy thing because you, 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 you play the whole year to win. Right. And you talked about this whole process. Right. And she probably has in her team, the U.S. team, their own, not probably, they have their own psychologists, their own process, yep. and they're also ex unbelievably good. Yep. But only one team wins. Right. Um, that's the part that, uh, that, I could, that I could imagine being really challenging because, you know, when you, when you love someone, you don't want that person to be hurt. You don't want that person to suffer. And sometimes you care about that more than you care about yourself. Right. But you're in such an unusual situation that it's crystal clear and it happens at the same time. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise it probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I think that was, we were very real about that, knowing going in that one yeah. of us was going to win and one of us was going to lose. Mm -hmm. um, but it is hard to think that your dream comes true as the person you care about's dream right. is crushed. Um, right. But she had the opportunity to go on and win a gold medal in 2018. So after you had retired, after I had retired, yeah. So who are you rooting for <laughs> in that gold medal game between Canada yeah, and the U.S.? This is a, a dangerous question. question yeah, you don't have to answer. I, no, I was, uh, <laughs> I was hoping for a great hockey game. Oh well, that's yeah. very diplomatic. <laughs> I think uh, um, 
I would have said, I'd like to see Canada win, but I'd like to see uh, Megan is her name. I would like to see her score three goals. Or right. Be the absolute <laughs> star of the show, but still lose. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not saying that's what you said. <laughs> so a um, couple of last questions before we, uh, before we wrap up. Um, you're, um, um, you're still in school, an MBA school. Uh, you're younger than a lot of our guests on the SIDCast uh, so far. But uh, the question still applies. If you could transport yourself back to when you were 21 years old, mm -hmm. and knowing what you know now, and the life you've lived uh, so far, what piece of advice would you give to yourself, your own 21-year-old self, kind of thinking about? Uh, wow. Um, I would probably tell myself to take more business classes in undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would have really appreciated those this year. Um, and then I probably would say be patient. Yeah. I think um, mm -hmm. I could have used a little bit more patience and... Um, trusted the fact that everything was going to work out. So you created more stress on yourself by not being patient? Is that what you're getting at or something else? Yeah, but I, I think more so looking back now um, yeah. where I am, knowing that um, if I could have predicted that I would have had an amazing hockey career, been really fortunate to play on those teams mm -hmm. and then end up at Tuck. Um, it's be, a pretty pretty be, good roadmap. You'd be pretty yeah, happy with that. So. so things sometimes work out, actually. Exactly. I mean, you don't have to kind of bang your head against the wall and, and utter, utter terror or fear in thinking about that. Um, um, you're, you're in an interesting situation also in that you've had this career and you're switching that career. Right. And so one of the questions I also like to ask is, you know, if you had a mulligan, uh, if you could do something over, is there some skill set? What would it be? And a lot of people can think about that uh, in different ways. But you're actually doing it and you're trying to answer that question. Yeah. But... Um, well, I'll just say for, for me, just to give you some framing, I've thought about, you know, if I didn't do this, what would I do? Uh, what could I, what, would I, what do I think I would have been good at and I would have enjoyed? Mm -hmm. Which are the two things that you've got to answer, right? And I would say, this first one's going to sound kind of pathetic, but uh, international tax attorney. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I love puzzles. Uh, I love numbers and I love figuring stuff out and that's pretty complicated. Yeah. The second one is much more interesting, a film director. But maybe everybody would say that. <laughs> um, and then I thought a detective. Yeah. Again, because I like to figure stuff out. Uh, those are really, really different. And I probably would, would have failed. Well, I would have liked to be a hockey player, to be honest <laughs> with you, as a Canadian. But that was clearly not going to happen at a young age. Uh, so how do you think about this kind of, if you weren't, if you weren't a hockey player? Yep. What path might you have taken? Because you're thinking about it now for the next stage. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I think in thinking about what another passion of mine is, is I would have loved to be a chef. And um, I grew up, my mom had a cooking school growing up, so um, I helped her out a lot. And I have a, a big passion for cooking, for food. Mm -hmm. It is sort of a natural transition mm -hmm. with being an athlete, um, just health and wellness in general. But um, right. I don't know, still in the back of my mind is some sort of, yeah. Business with food, um, mm -hmm. I'm still looking for that. So right. I think if I could do it all over again and I had no guardrails, I would probably go go down that path. There's uh, there, there are more and more businesses being created out of the food world mm -hmm. than ever before. A lot of private equity money going in. It's really kind of almost a revolution going on. Yeah. Um, um, you see it in, say, in the coffee business. You know, a lot of these small coffee um, uh, chains are being acquired. You know, Nestle bought Blue Bottle, for example, for like 300 
50 million or some crazy number. And Blue Bottle is a small chain that mm -hmm. had, had at the time not more than probably 25 stores, I'm going to guess. Um, so you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of that. So there is this kind of thing that's going on. So I, 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 I can imagine. And I'm a big foodie, so I, uh, this is great. Like, I love hockey, and I'm a big foodie. <laughs> this has been a tremendous treat for me, Jillian. Thank you so much for coming on the Sidcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hi, this is Ben, the producer of the Sidcast, back again this week. I don't think Sid even knows that I came on to promote the podcast last week. But this week, I'm trying to earn some major league brownie points by telling you about Sid's new book that just came out. It's called The Super Boss's Playbook, his hands-on toolkit to help people become much better managers and leaders. And I don't have to tell you that his book is fabulous. As you know, the Sidcast is all about talking to people you might not know, but you will wish you did. And this is especially true with our guest next week, a woman who has worked as a restaurant manager, a preschool teacher, in an emergency room, as an artist, and just so happens to run one of the best coffee shops north of Boston. As it also turns out, Sid is totally obsessed with their cortados, but I'm sure that had nothing to do with him heading to her coffee shop for a chat. Once again, please share our podcast through Facebook, Twitter, email, etc. You know the deal. Even talk to someone face-to-face -face if you have to. Thanks again, and see you soon.